This episode of the MGMA podcast is brought to you by Walmart Business. It's the Walmart you love, now for business. Get everything you need for your staff and patients in one place. Enjoy big savings on health and safety products, cleaning supplies, over-the-counter medications, and much more. And don't forget the break room snacks. Create a free account today and start shopping at business.walmart.com. That's business.walmart.com. From the MGMA in-home studios, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. Um, I remember, and this is relevant today with COVID when it broke out, the look that I was seeing people's eyes and the fear they would express is similar to what soldiers would be the first time they deploy. That's Jimmy Holland on how his military background translates to his current healthcare role. We'll hear more from Jimmy on life at West Point and in the Army in this special episode celebrating National Military Appreciation Month. But first, a word from our sponsor. Practice administrators don't need to be medical coders, but they do need to understand the coding process to ensure their practice's success. With the COVID-19 crisis causing regulatory changes to telehealth and major changes expected to E&M rules in 2021, there's never been a more important time to understand the medical coding landscape. That's precisely why MGMA has put together the online seminar, Coding Essentials for the Non-Coder. Attend this event May 21st to gain a deeper knowledge of the major coding principles during the coronavirus outbreak and beyond. To learn more or to register for this seminar, which is eligible for ACMPE, ACHE, CME, CPE, and CEU credit, visit mgma.com events. This week's guest has taken a service-oriented path to healthcare administration. From Army Combat Engineer to Performance Improvement Manager for HCA Physician Services Group, Jimmy Holland is one MGMA member who's made the move from military to medical practice. In addition to his role with HCA, Jimmy serves in the Tennessee National Guard, volunteers for MGMA, and is the immediate past president of Nashville MGMA. Jimmy. First of all, thanks for your service, and also, thanks for joining us today. Hey, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Excited to be here. Now, when did you know that the military would be part of your life? Uh, like a lot of folks, it started early, right? Um, my this family history there. My father volunteered in the Marines for Vietnam. Um, his father... I believe was in the Navy, then maybe his father was in the Air Force, and it just kind of went, went, went back and back. My um, grandfather was a kind of a politician. He never served um, on my mother's side of the family now, but he knew the value of West Point and that kind of thing. And, and so while the motivation really came from maybe my dad's side and just a, an affinity for running around and, you know, guns and all that kind of stuff, like being a kid. Um, but then my grandfather helped me make sure I'm checking those boxes early enough to be competitive for West Point. And so working together, they, um, I guess, planted that seed. 
Yeah. Now you mentioned West Point a couple of times there. You attended the military academy there. It's one thing to dream about it, think about it, see, uh, read stories, but you actually attended. So what what surprised you? What was different than you thought it would be in that experience? It, it, it's funny thinking about that question because my first answer wants to be, well, nothing. You know, I showed up. I'd done my research. I was prepared. But then I think back, I'm 20 years removed from that day. And that's not true at all. It's like you show up and they give you this big speech. Like, you know, you're here. that You're going to be going on this, this um, you know, learning experience, leadership experience. But your parents are still in the room. And then they're like, well, you've got 30 seconds to say goodbye to your family. And you go watch the YouTube videos. They're hilarious. And then you walk around the corner and all the formalities and niceties go away. And... Um, everything just goes nuts. Everybody's screaming. Like I distinctly remember we walked into this room and there was this table and they were screaming at me about an apex. And apparently the pins had been set up like in a triangle and it had to be facing a certain way to teach you attention to detail. I'm like, what do you, why is there so much screaming, right? Um, and, and so really everything in, in its own way was, was a surprise because it's a complete adjustment to life, right? Um, you're in college, right? And you got to be able to take care of yourself. But it's also this military experience. And it's right after 9-11. So there is a um, unique perspective in what you're trying to prepare for. Did 9-11 impact your decision at all? Or were you already in the process of applying and, and already planning to attend West Point? It, it did. I was already in the process. Um, one of the things that is unique about our class is our class rings. Um, have the Twin Towers on it because wow. we were the first class to officially begin that process after after it happened, right? And, and so it's kind of memorialized for us. It's on our class crest. Um, and then, but I do remember it. I, I was sitting in English class, AP English class, and the first plane hit. I remember thinking, like, why would, can't they fly? Like, the building doesn't move, right? And then the second one hit math class and they're like, this is not an accident. Right. right? And so it adds a different flavor because you're excited to about the potential for West Point at that. But now it's no longer just about a good education and maybe serving for a few years. You're going to end up in combat, which came you know, evident within um, you know, a few days once Afghanistan kicked off. Yeah. Now, one of the things that's <laughs> so vital at West Point is the leadership skills that you teach that they teach you there. And I'm just wondering about that. What, what did you learn there that you have been able to translate to your work at HCA? Different things. And a lot of it's really the kind of foundation that, that you build up on, right? That the military training models built to be continuous, right? So the training I'm doing now is just another brick in the same house I started building back then. Um, so some of the lessons were actually more useful kind of maybe later on when, when your new cadets show up and you've been there for a few years and, and these guys are freaking out. Uh, or even when you, you made it to Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, I remember, and this is relevant today with COVID, when it broke out, the look that I was seeing in people's eyes and the fear they would express is similar to what soldiers would be the first time they deploy. And, and it, it's a fairly graphic term, but you didn't sign up for it, but you woke up in a war and we got to go. You know, there's things we got to do. We got to do it wisely, but understanding that perspective and it's okay to be scared. 
I think was helpful in understanding it's okay to talk through those things, but we still have a job to do. And so we got to figure out how to handle both priorities. Mm -hmm. Now, has your day-to-day changed then um, with the COVID-19 lockdown? I mean, what has been the situation there as far as your work, uh, really with first with HCA, how has that changed? Uh, Everything has, has changed. I remember I was working on a scheduling project for HCA and, you know, we're, we're basically a global company, right? Most of my stuff um, has been in the United States, no chance to travel yet, but I do travel about 25%, uh, basically doing consulting type work internally. And I was in the middle, I'd just come back from Richmond and, and I was gearing up. Um, we had a meeting on Wednesday and they said we may close down. I mean, I was scheduled to fly on Monday for Denver. And Thursday morning I got the email and they canceled everything. Um, and so trips all over the country have been canceled. I've been working from home and, uh, it, since I'm a site visit based kind of employee, it, it kind of had to rebuild the whole job from the ground up. How do I support remotely? So while I'm supposed to be doing research and schedule management and all that kind of stuff right now, I've been focusing mostly in assisting our emergency operations center, um, as we prepare for potential hotspots and making sure our, um, ambulatory clinics are ready for whatever we think may come. Yeah. Were you set up already at home? Did you have a home base, so to speak, where you could communicate right away with peers and other people in the industry? Or did you have to get some infrastructure built up there so you could do your job? I was ready because I travel already, right? Like I can open up my laptop and work from anywhere in the world. Um, But um, as far as a dedicated place that didn't really exist. So I had to kidnap my wife's extra monitor and um, you know, the, the dining room has become an office and all that kind of stuff happened. But the ability to, to communicate and work remotely wasn't a huge leap because we do that already. Okay. I wanted to go back and ask you just a couple more questions about West Point. Um, now, the, the sports world is, has been among many things just kind of turned upside down or at least put on hold for right now. But near the top of my bu- bucket list is one day attending an Army-Navy football game. I, I just have to know, what is the atmosphere like that uh, at one of those games? What's, what has been your experiences at those? Um, it is awesome. It is so much fun. Um, Unfortunately, I've never seen us win in person. I've seen it on TV a few times. Um, and, and I go, like every cadet goes. It's a requirement. Um, but the Army football was in much rougher position back in the mid-2000s than they are now. Um, but it's great because, you know, there's the pageantry and the flyovers. And, um, you know, while you, you may be enemies for a few hours, those are, those are your buddies um, as soon as it's over um, in your next mission. Yeah it's really hard to qualify because I want to be like, it's awesome. And it is, but, but it is also truly, truly unique um, in kind of a way that is very hard to describe. Yeah. Yeah. Just as a civilian watching it on TV, I can get goosebumps just watching that game, watching uh, the cadets standing, cheering the kind of, uh, uh, you know, camaraderie that's there. It's just unlike anything else. So that's so cool that you've, uh, gotten to experience that yeah. um go ahead definitely go if you get a chance and anybody listening if you get a chance to go what i would recommend is go early right <laughs> don't don't show up when the game starts make sure you pull the order of events because the march on is incredible but they got to get on and get out of the way before like warm-ups right it's not like 
the band marching on immediately before kickoff. And then there, there's other stuff kind of going around, um, around the stadium. Um, so all the information is available whenever they do the next game and what they may look like. So I'm sure it'll be different. But definitely uh, show up early so you can capitalize on the whole experience. Sure. Now, after graduating from West Point, you were deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan. Talk us through that. What was your primary role there? What was that experience like as well? Sure. Um, so as soon as I graduated, I commissioned as an engineer officer uh, and went to Iraq uh, about a year after graduation. Because once you graduate West Point, you're like, you're done with school. And then the first thing to do is send you to school. And um, so it took about a year to go through a couple additional courses um, and then caught up with my unit in Iraq. Um, there I was a platoon leader, uh, engineer platoon leader running um, mainly horizontal construction equipment, um, bulldozers, graders, like that kind of stuff. Um, but due to the unique situation we were in, we were dual-hatted as what you might call a battle space owner. So we helped own Tikrit, Iraq, which was Saddam's hometown. Um, so that was crazy. Like we, we would, um, you'd go from fixing a road to having lunch with his family to doing more combat-oriented missions at night and, and that kind of thing. Um, one crazy study uh, or mission that I always like to share is his, um, Saddam's very just south of Tikrit, where, where he's from. And we were there doing some construction work. And the, the citizens all like kind of came out. Like we, we were going to do something. Like, no, we're just doing some work here. Um, and, and so kind of a, a crazy experience getting in because you see all this stuff on TV. Then all of a sudden, you're like there. And it's real, right? Um, and so by being a platoon leader, you're just trying to run those missions and do the best you can to do a positive impact. Yeah. So Afghanistan is very different because um, by then um, I'd been promoted. I'm a captain now. You know, we came home, we went back home about a year and a half, and then, then went back out for that Afghanistan mission. Um, at this point, I'm working on the, on the brigade staff, um, doing uh, mainly construction management type stuff again, um, and running uh, on the eastern border projects all the way up from Nuristan down through um, Nangahar. Um, and the Konar River Valley, and, and that area was my responsibility, mainly doing construction type stuff. And so that was really cool because you got to see all these different parts of the country. Um, like a bunch of floods came through, and so we got to see the Afghan Air Force, which at the time was just helicopters, like going up um, and like rescuing their citizens off roofs and, and making sure folks were taken care of. Um, there's certainly some combat-oriented stuff because it is Afghanistan. Um, but making sure that the soldiers are protected and the facilities are, are ready for what we need to do, but also what, what the Afghan military is going to need to do once we're gone. And that was my primary focus was all those construction projects. Mm -hmm. What was the most important lesson then that you learned from your deployment? Um, I think there's a couple you, you can really pull, right? One that always kind of sticks out to me is it's all about the people and the perspectives that they might have. Um, like there's some shakes that, that I remember that, that we'd get to know, know in Iraq and, and you start developing like real friendships and that kind of thing, which drives a lot of the stuff we see today. Like I mentioned before, like the nurses being scared and that kind of thing. Well, there's a reason for that and understanding that it is important. Um, but also like the different communities within our country have different perspectives on, on maybe the government or on um, our healthcare system and that kind of stuff and understanding why that may exist that way um, is important because the, the Afghans are going to look at you that way, right? They're going to have the experience of, of the Russians um, fighting 
um, before we got there. And so we're now this, this invading force um, and push the Taliban out. And so they've really got three choices. They, they've got us, they've got the, uh, the Afghan government, and they've got uh, the Taliban and who are they going to trust. But history doesn't start the day we showed up. There's a reason for all those things. And it's a very complicated web. Um, I wish there was a simple answer, but understanding all that history and understanding people and doing the best you can to understand their perspective and why they think the way they do gives you a lot of leverage for success. Right. Now, what's your current role in the military? You're still uh, have an active role. Is that correct? Yeah. So um, shortly after Afghanistan, um, we my wife and I decided to transition to the National Guard. It's a little different than active duty uh, for the first few years. Uh, bounced around the Tennessee National Guard doing a bunch of different jobs. Uh, currently assigned to the 278th Armored Cavalry Regiment, um, where I'm the brigade engineer. So primarily, fo primarily focused on um, combat engineering now, which is a lot of explosives, which is a lot of fun. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, that, that's, that's what we do. Yeah. So have they contacted you then um, with the COVID-19 outbreak? Is there a role that you guys are, are playing or going to play in the future? Um, yeah, the Tennessee National Guard's activated. Um, Governor Lee called us up. And so we've got folks um, all over the state. Tennessee's primarily using our soldiers in um, helping out with screening centers. And so um, there's ways to get tested in Tennessee at county health centers. And a lot of those are staffed uh, with, with National Guard support. I've not personally been activated. Uh, they've called me a few times uh, because I formerly was on the state planning staff for emergency response. And so I have some experience certifications there that may help. Um, but so far we have not needed me. And so I just keep doing my kind of what we might call the drill weekend role or the, the M day role. Okay. How are you able to balance your work at HCA with your work with the national guard? How does that work out for you? Um, that was funny because I've been thinking about that one as well quite a bit. How, how do I balance it? Um, but you asked before, like, how do I, um, um, you know, work for home? What was that transition like? Well, part of it is I, I learned how to work in the National Guard. So, like, if I'm on the road trying to help a clinic and my boss calls me and needs some help with, you know, a train assessment or, or some sort of military thing, get ready for drill, if I can help them, you know, I will. Um, and the same thing is in reverse. I remember sitting on top of a Humvee down in Mississippi, watching some tanks do some training and, and I'm not participating. I'm just kind of watching. And then uh, my piece would be kind of after they're done doing the review and a buddy calls me about like a staffing issue in a clinic. So I'm sitting there and, and they were talking. He's like, what's that noise in the background? I'm like, I see some tanks running around. And he's like, why? And I'm like, I'm on drill status, man. Like what's going on? I'll help you out. Right. And, and so a lot of it's that just, trying to provide value and being as helpful as I can whenever I can. Um, and a lot of it just has to do, do kind of the rocks theory, right? You put the big rockets, rocks in the bucket first and then the small rocks and making sure my priorities are right. And then that way, the things that have to get done, get done. And then the things that, that are maybe smaller, have some freedom with, um, we can wait on. Yeah. The kind of work that you're doing at HCA and the kind of work that you do with the National Guard, is that accessing the same part of your brain or are you having to kind of rearrange things in there to get the work done? How, talk about that. The um, kind of learning curve was not as bad as I thought. A lot of times the definitions are different, right? 
but um, we're going to start from the military perspective. Like they say, hey, we need to breach this door. Well, there's a lot of different ways I can breach that door. And so how I decide to do that is important. The decision-making process is, is a big piece of that. Um, but it's the same thing in the military, right? Two months ago, I get a call. I'm, I'm sorry, it's the same thing at HCA. Two months ago, I get a call and says, hey, we need to look at how we do scheduling. And I want you to understand how that happens um, and come up with some options on how we may be able to influence that. And so same thing, I, I use the military decision-making process. It's just kind of what's ingrained in my head. Um, and while I'm applying different tools, I haven't found a use for explosives in a clinic yet. Um, <laughs> but if I can, I'm, you know, we'll, we'll find a way to do that, you know, safely and legally, that'd be all kinds of fun. Um, but the backbone's the same, right? Different words, but still finding creative solutions that, that have a reasonable chance of success. It's the same at that level. Yeah. So now you and I corresponded recently. You told me that your favorite thing in the army was to teach young soldiers. Tell us about that and why it's so important to you. Um, it it kind of, I think, goes back in many ways to one of the things I mentioned before, right? That there's a um, fear in what we do, right? And, and there's good reason for that, right? If I hand a soldier, you know, a block of C4, well, it, it could blow up. It can't. I know that. There, there's, you know, ways to make that happen, but, but giving them confidence in their tools is it, it, so much fun. Like, I remember one specific story uh, where I had a, a young soldier and, and we calculate what's called a minimum safe distance when we're blowing indoors and, and that kind of thing. You want to be as close as possible to the objective. And uh, the minimum safe distance was like, well, let's call it seven feet. And the guy lined up like 20 feet away. Well, if you're 20 feet away, it's going to take you twice as long to get to the door, twice as long for people on the other side to get ready. So there's a lot of risk there. And I said, well, let's go to seven feet. And his eyes get as big as saucers. Right? There's explosive and you want me to get closer. You know, mommy always says, stay away from the fireworks, right? And you want me to go up and be seven feet away from this thing. That's what we're going to do. And, and so he goes up and the soldiers that, you know, are nervous. I'll go up and I'll take a knee right beside him. Like, I'm at exactly the same risk are you are. We're going to be okay. And then it, and it blows and, and we do our thing and everybody's fine. And, um, but now they got confidence, right? And, and that's how you, you build courage to overcome that fear is now that I'm trained, now that I know how all this stuff works, I can trust it and I can do the job I need to do. Yeah, that's a great story. Now, you have your FACMPE. Uh, you mm -hmm. wrote your, yeah, you wrote your fellow paper on military leadership in the medical practice. So for our listeners, what are a couple of the key points that you would want our audience to take away from that paper? I think um, the most important thing is kind of what I mentioned before um, around decision-making processes, right? And I cover several in the, uh, the paper, uh, but the, the Army really has two, which is um, MDMP, which stands for Military Decision-Making Process. That works great for somebody like HCA and our large integrated systems and that kind of thing. They're going to have like a support staff. But if you're a practice manager and it's just you and your clinic, something like troop leading procedures would make more sense. Um, now, granted, we spend years training on this stuff, but we'll break it down simple. And all that means is going through some sort of um, specific decision-making process. Because if you don't, the alternative is a knee-jerk reaction. And you can turn on the news any day and look at leaders making decisions because of COVID, right? 
And some of those decisions are knee-jerk and some of those decisions are, are well thought out. Um, not wanting to get into the politics here, but we can kind of talk through what that might look like. So one of the things is make a tentative plan. That's the third step. Um, and so I had a friend the other day that was working through, not HCA, working through, through a supply issue. And so how are we gonna make sure that the, the PPE gets to the clinics, right? Well, you just go ahead, make your plan, but then initiate that movement. Now we're, initiating movement is, is the fourth step, right? And so talking through how we can go ahead and get started. We don't have to finalize the decision. Can we start moving? Because the data is changing, right? What made sense for us to do in February maybe doesn't make as much sense in May. And so being flexible to change that plan as you go on um, and making sure you're collecting the data. And it's a continuous ongoing process, right? It's not a specific decision, but you want to avoid that kind of reaction out of fear um, and truly lead with, with good data, good backed up decisions. That it can get you the success that you want. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for sharing that. Now, I wanted to ask you something. We backtrack here. Uh, we're all working from home. It sounds like you've got some troops running around back behind you as well. Who all do you have in the house with you today? I do. I so my four-year-old. Um, I'm hoping you can't hear Frozen, but Frozen is on um, <laughs> down the hallway. Um, and so she's down there, my four-year-old. I got a dog. Um, so no one's come to the door yet, or you would hear him. Um, my wife's working from home as well. She's in children's ministry at a local church. So they've kind of had to rebuild the entire thing from the ground up. And then um, I've got a son somewhere. He's running around down there with her too, but he's younger. He's like uh, almost two. So just yeah, screaming it, from him. We're, we're in a unique situation here and there's no telling with a Zoom call uh, what could happen at any point. So, right, you know, it's, right. it's, it's great. And one of the important things here is since we are in lockdown, we're working from home, is trying to find some of that balance. We've been talking to healthcare leaders around the country and people finding different routines, different habits that allow them to do great work, but also to have a semblance of life as well. Um, <clears throat> in, in researching you, I learned that one of the things you love to do is backpack in the beautiful Appalachian Mountains. I'm from the South and used to hike those mountains a lot when I was living there for about 30 years or so. Uh, just curious, have you been able to get out any lately during this or during the lockdown? Um, not really hiking. I live in Nashville now, so trying to get to um, the Smokies is really more of kind of a weekend trip. I wish I could. It'd be so much fun because there, I'd assume it wouldn't be anybody there. So it'd be kind of you, you and the trees and, and, and all the animals and stuff. It'd be a great time. But the supplement for that is basically just running. I like to run. Um, I was training for a marathon before this all broke and, and all those were canceled. Um, and so I just went ahead and switched to my summer plan. But when things get a little stressful, you're like, oh, just go out and maybe run a little faster than I should have and, and burn it off. Um, but that is the, the supplement. Yeah. So what, what marathon were you training for? Um, I hadn't even decided because I was trying to get into the National Guard Marathon time trial, which was the Lincoln Marathon. Um, and that was supposed to be this past weekend. And um, that got canceled. And my backup was the uh, National Music City Marathon. And that also got canceled. Yeah. So one of those was going to be it. We just never decided. Yeah. One of the other things that we've seen across the country is that 
this crisis has allowed people time to reflect, be reflective, to go into different hobbies, other other areas of interest that they have. One of yours is books. You mentioned in an email to me that on your hikes, you like to bring your Kindle to read books. You haven't been on those trails, but I can see on our Zoom call here that you have a lot of books behind you. Are you reading anything good you can share with us? That, that's funny. So I see those. And I thought about that when you ask a question. Not a one of those books is mine. <laughs> They're all my wife. She reads substantially more. It's impressive. I'm like, wow. But, but yeah, I like to read. I just finished reading um, Once an Eagle, uh, which is a military book. It's fairly famous, kind of in military circles. It, it's a historical novel that spans from World War II, I'm sorry, World War I, all the way up through um, Korea. Well, most of the, the characters are really a little past Korea, I think. Most characters aren't real. Um, they'll mention like General MacArthur and a few other guys. Um, the, the, the two main characters aren't, aren't real. So it's really a study in leadership. And I mention it because the, the West Pointer is not the hero. And so you, you got to read it, you know, with my background, a little bit of maybe a grain of salt. But it's a great leadership perspective. We were talking about, right, like what we can learn here. And I think some of that does apply. Uh, Sam Damon, the, the, the main guy, he's always going out on a limb for his, you know, soldiers. Um, and we see that in the healthcare community. Um, a, a lot of leaders um, at different levels, right? What can we do to take care of our staff? What can we do to take care of our patients? Um, we still have a, a healthcare mission. We got to take care of patients. People still need care. But can we do that in a way that is still high quality and low cost while also taking care of our people? Yeah. That's a good corollary that comes from that book. Sure. Uh, final thoughts then. I wanted to get your um, ideas, your thoughts on what the military has meant to your life and career, what healthcare has meant to your life and career. That's a very deep question. <laughs> um, because it's kind of everything, right? It, it's built who I am. Um, last night, I think I mentioned coming before we guess we had storms roll through Tennessee and, and we had some storm damage. And, and so it kind of impacts how do you decide we're in the middle of a storm, but we got storm damage. You know, a guy down the street's got water running into his house. How are we gonna you know react to all this this kind of stuff, right? Um, one of the lessons learned from West Point, you know, with all the yelling, is a lot of life is just noise, but a lot of it actually matters. And figuring out what matters today is important. So sometimes maybe it's okay to kind of turn stuff off and go play Monopoly with my four-year-old and enjoy that crazy because there's some stress there for her too and, and she needs that break. Jimmy, I, I just want to thank you again for your service and thank you for sharing these great stories and thoughts with us today. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. That's going to do it for this episode of Insights. Thanks to our guest, Jimmy Holland. As part of MGMA's efforts during National Military Appreciation Month, visit mgma.com for more stories from members who have served or are serving. To keep up with the latest regarding the pandemic, be sure to visit mgma.com COVID. You can also connect with fellow members and healthcare peers at community.mgma.com. And while you're at it, don't forget to register for the May 21st online seminar, Coding Essentials for the Non-Coder, with a spotlight on telehealth and COVID-19. 
Reserve your spot today at mgma.com slash events. MGMA Insights is presented by Declan McGee, Rob Ketchum, and I'm Daniel Williams. Stay safe and thanks for listening. Hi, this is Declan McGee, one of the producers for the MGMA Insights podcast. If you like the work we're doing, please consider becoming an MGMA member. Learn more at mgma.com membership. Thanks. The popular buzzword we've been seeing everywhere is AI. But what we all want to know is how we can implement and use it to our advantage. When it comes to improving margins, accelerating cash flow, and optimizing staff performance, there's a one-stop shop using cloud-based predictive analytics. MGMA Analytics is your AI-enabled tool that upscales technology you've already been paying for, so you can silo your disparate systems and make data-backed business decisions. Visit mgma.com analytics and see how AI can revolutionize your finances and operations. Again, visit mgma.com analytics today.